Oh, hello, everyone. Now you can hear me. Wanted to acknowledge those few brave souls that um, not only got up this morning, but they wore their prom attire. <clears throat> but uh, so just make sure you go tell them how good they look. There were others who said, not today, I'm too tired. Um, I'm not saying names. But uh, so it was exciting to see all those kids um, dressed up like that. It's really fun. But that's not why we're here. Now, I've told you many times that I struggle in my prayer life. It's just it's a hard habit for me to get into for some reason. Um, here lately, this is what I've been praying. Dear Father, I thank you for you, but I think you'd be proud of me. So far today, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, lusted, lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, grumpy, or selfish. I've praised your name. I'm grateful for your grace. But Lord, in a few minutes, I'm getting out of bed. And from then on out, I'm going to need a lot of your help. Have you ever felt like that? You know, I'm doing good. But I haven't even had coffee yet, so I know the day is going to get worse. No matter what I do, I cannot, I'm going to tell you right now, no matter what I do, I cannot get through the day without God's help. The worst time comes when I am feeling confident. When I think I have it all together, when I think I've got it all planned and mapped out, that's when I stumble and falter my faith. Last night at the, at the Grand March thing that was at the Auburn Museum uh, building, they had all the kids go upstairs, and then they came down these flight of stairs, and what was every girl thinking? Don't trip, don't trip, don't trip, don't trip. They had their eyes locked on the steps in front of them, not at the family, because they didn't want, and there was a few girls who stumbled like that. Whenever we are in a place where we aren't focused on the right things, we start stumbling. When I start looking at what I've done, what I've accomplished, that's when my faith, I start to stumble. Temptation and sin are ever-present. They're an ongoing struggle for all of us. No one exempt from sin, uh, from its powerful draw, its terrible effects. Some people have certain tendencies towards certain sins. Some people will naturally be more apt at lying. Some will have trouble with gossip. Some will struggle with the sin of drunkenness. Some will fill the pool to the sin of excessive anger. <clears throat> of all the temptations, of all the sins, none perhaps is as strong and devastating as sexual lust and sexual sin. The Bible clearly warns us about these temptations and explicit commands and it gives us personal examples. Today we're returning back after last week's focus on Mother's Day. Today we come back to our theme, which is pursue. Pursue a quest for a godly heart. And in this, we're studying the life of David. If I were to ask you, what do you know most about David? I asked a couple of uh, you today about it. The first thing they say, David and Goliath. Everybody knows this young kid who beats all the odds. He's the underdog. He, he beats Goliath. What else do we know David for? Shepherd. What'd you say? Bathsheba. Oh, wait a minute. That's drastically different than David and Goliath, but it's in a poll I read, it actually showed the top two things David is known for. It's not man of God's own heart. It's not for shepherd. It's not for writing music being a musician, his top two things, David and Goliath, 
David and Bathsheba. David is most remembered for how he interacted with two different people. These two individuals are polar opposites. Goliath's a man, Bathsheba's a woman. Goliath was rough and tough, Bathsheba was soft and gentle. Goliath was a warrior, Bathsheba was a lover. The physical forms attached to these two people could not be more different, yet they both do exactly the same thing for David. They both present a, a serious test for David. In the encounter with Goliath, David is young, unknown, and in many respects, he is untested. In the encounter with Bathsheba, David is mature, well-known, thoroughly tested and tried. With Goliath, David emerges triumphant. With Bathsheba, he goes down in defeat. Today, we're going to look at how David encounters this second giant in his life. In 2 Samuel 11.1, 1, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Jake Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. At this point, David is about 50, 50 years old. Now, when generally we think of this, we don't think of David being this old. We, most people that I've talked to think he's about in his 20s or 30s. He's 50. Now, I'm 45 now. 50's not old anymore. But to some people, 50 is kind of very old. Well, David, he's 50. He's been king for 20 years now. David has shown that he's been a man of God. He's a composer of psalms. He's a valiant warrior, a powerful leader of God's nation. He's a man of passion and of compassion. Now, keep in mind that we are not examining the life of some wild rebel or some sexual pervert. David is a man who fell into a period of sin. And that sin will have devastating consequences, not only on himself, but on his family for years to come. And then his nation. At this point, 50 years old, David is actually spiritually weak. He's unguarded in this weakened state. Uh, it, it's like his faith is one of those sea walls that hasn't been upkept and it started crumbling under the constant waves. But we must realize that David didn't fall suddenly. This is the thing. It wasn't just something that happened. Okay? Chinks in his spiritual armor had already begun to fall. Back in chapter 5, 2 Samuel 5, 13, you're going to read that David was taking more and more wives and concubines. And more and more sons and daughters were being born to him. This increase in the number of wives and concubines is, I'm going to say this right now, I want everybody to know, direct disobedience to what God wanted. Deuteronomy 17, 17, God says this, the king must not take many wives for himself. And really that many just means plural. He must not take plural wives because they will turn his heart away from the Lord, and he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. Notice, he must not take gold and silver, or he must not take poor wives for himself. That's the change in there. He must not have things for himself. 
Last time we looked at the scripture, though, it was to examine King Saul and how King Saul fell in his faith. King Saul, the enemy of David, and David following in the exact footsteps of King Saul. Just so you know, this sermon is going to be just a tad blunt. Okay, I grew up in a church where we didn't talk about SEX. We avoided that topic. And as a result, I think a direct result, many in the youth group were very promiscuous. In fact, there were four kids who had um, unplanned pregnancies. And I was the first of those. And so, I don't ever want to fall into that. If it's in the Bible, as we've said, if it's in here, we're going to talk about it. Even if it's uncomfortable. And this topic today is uncomfortable. But the church has got to fight it. The church has got to stand up and say, this is what the Word of God says. You stand on this, you will not fall. It's when we get off of it and ignore it, we sink into the culture and into the world. So today's going to be just a little blunt. David learned the hard way that having a harem of women does not satisfy his sexual passion. In fact, it only increased it. One of the lies that Satan has convinced not only our society, but many people in the church, is that if if you just give into the desire a little bit, then it'll be abated, it'll be stopped, and then you can control it. Yet the, the exact opposite occurs. All it takes is one slip into premarital sex, and then it turns into more and more. It takes one glance at a pornographic image, and that turns into an addiction. Feeding the lustful appetite only intensifies it. It never satisfies David's lust and polygamy began to erode his spirituality and his integrity. David chose to be vulnerable in his faith by allowing lust to roam. He let it roam. He let it go like crazy. But this was just one area where David allowed himself to become vulnerable to sin. Second Samuel chapter 5 through 11, we see nothing in David's life that, oh, thank you. It's allergy season, folks. By the way, you'll notice I'm drinking out of my St. Joe Church of Christ mug. It's great. You want some? We can help you find one. All right. Thank you. Um, we see success and constant in David's life, and so David allowed himself to be vulnerable through his success. He's at an all-time high here. Twenty years into his reign. He is fresh off a series of great victories in the battlefield. He's reached the peak of his public admiration. Something any modern politician would want. David right now has a 90% plus approval rating. That's the, the nation loves him. David has ample money, incredible power, unquestionable authority, and remarkable fame. I just learned something from someone here in the church that if you do this, it means something. Hey, you got kids and everything, and then if you do this, that means you've reached the peak of when they're going to be good. The rest is all down here. And so, oh, we need to go. And, and so if you see any of our parents go, 
They're leaving because oh, our kids are going to get worse now. We got to go. Got to go. Get them in the bed. David here just hit his peak. And from here on out in his life, in his reign, it's going to be downhill. Our most vulnerable times are when we, when things um, are not when things are going badly or when things are difficult. Our most vulnerable times are when we're at that peak, when we think we've reached it, when it's easy. Hard times cause us, hard times cause us to draw close to God. The survival mode keeps us in humility. Pride goes before the the fall. And really what it means, pride is when you're looking up and you don't realize there's a step because you're looking up and look how good I am. Not looking up at God, but trying to show that you've got it all together. When everything's going our way, that's when we take our eyes off God and fall into sin. Because it's all going so well, David began to take life a bit easier. David's becoming undisciplined and he's becoming bored. David chose to be vulnerable by indulging himself here. While other kings were off at the battlefield making sure their territories and, and their people were safe, David's men were out there fighting, but he's lounging at home taking an afternoon nap. It's not hard to see how David was primed for failure. So this whole time leading up to this section we're looking at in chapter 11, it's been building into this. It's not just a happen. It didn't just happen. He's been choosing a lifestyle that led him here. He was crying for failure. His growing lust, great success, and incredible indulgence has eroded his spiritual focus and his strong character. And so far we've looked at verse 1. Let's go to verse 2 now. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking along the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now this right here, we need to understand, Eastern monarchs frequently built their bedchambers high above in their palace, second or third story, and they had rooftop patios. This was a great way to get away from all the people, to get away from the noise and the bustle, and they could kind of just relax from the stress of all their their job. That's where David find himself. So he decided to take a walk along his patio. From the rooftop, he saw a woman bathing, and this woman, unusual beauty, is, is what it said. David saw her. And instead of turning his head, David looked again. David looked longer. And then he didn't take his eyes off her. David gave into that temptation to look lustfully at this woman. And I want to say something very strong here. This is not Bathsheba's fault. She was on the rooftop towards the evening, the end of the day, where she was secluded, where she was supposed to be safe, and she was taking a bath, and it was actually talking about she was ceremonially being clean here. She was doing things proper and modest. David's the one who sinned. He's the one who kept doing it. David failed the test. He did not turn his eyes away. He did not run away. He did not turn to the Lord. As we were uh, 
raising our family, anytime something questionable would come on TV that would be too scantily clad or something, both my boys and I, we would turn and look at Casey. We'd put our hands up because we don't want to see that. We, we turned and looked away. It got so bad that any time a girl would kiss a guy, Austin was like, I don't want to see that. that that's gross. He even did it once when Casey and I kissed. He's like, oh. We turned away. We tried to train them. You don't look. You, but David didn't do that. Instead, instead of turning his head, instead of even turning to God, he stopped, he stared, he lusted. He stood in the roof of that night air with no one else around, and he lost cognizance of who he was. And he let go of the consequences that were going to happen. He envisioned the, please, the pleasure of having this beautiful woman. He had no idea who she was. And we can see this in the next scripture, uh, verse 3. David sent someone to find out who she was. He didn't even know. Who is this? He go find out. And this is what the guy said. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, normally at this time, they would give your lineage from your father and on. That's it. They would give the name of the person, the father's name, and maybe even the grandfather's name, but they wouldn't say the spouse. David right here has a subtle warning. Hey, this is the wife of Uriah. Now, we, we also need to notice something. King David, this lady's married, not only married, but she's married to Eliam. Oh, Eliam is one of your mighty men, making her the granddaughter of one of your most trusted advisors. So she's the daughter of Eliam. And uh, Uriah is also one of your mighty men. Now, if you go back a few chapters in 1 Samuel, we talked about his mighty men. He had this group of warriors. They were close-knit. He knew these guys. They were a band of brothers. David, she's the wife of one of your band of brothers. She is the daughter and granddaughter of your most trusted people. Danger. That's what this is. She's not only married, she is almost like family because of your friends here. She is off limits. I think the, the servant here knew exactly what he was doing. I think he knew exactly what he... He'd seen his king in his growing lust with all these concubines and wives. He'd seen David operate with women. There was a... Problem was last night, so I'm, I'm going to tell this story. There was a time in high school when um, somebody had a huge crush on me. And I hadn't asked her to prom. And so she purposely talked to her friends about maybe asking this one guy who I knew was a womanizing jerk. Or couldn't stand him. And she looked at me and said, I think I'm going to ask him. Now, she didn't look at me. That's just how it felt. And the reason why it irritated me is because I kind of had a crush on her, too. <laughs> so we went to prom and then got married. I'm not going to let that guy near her. But how do you feel if you know someone you love, some niece, sister, friend, is going to be near somebody who's just a womanizing jerk? That's what, that's what the servant is saying. Hey! He, he purposely said this. But yet David 
David at this moment is out of control. God is quite unreal to him. His desire for sexual pleasure with that woman is dominant. He moved quickly, warning, um, ignoring all the warning signs. You go to verse 4. Then David sent messengers. Messengers. Not once. That really, right there, that means it could have been multiple times to go and get her because she refused, possibly, to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Okay, here's, I'm going to say something else that's kind of shocking. I would have never heard this growing up. We would be foolish to think that there was no pleasure in this encounter between David and Bathsheba. They, they enjoyed it. This act carried with it an enormous amount of sexual and sensual excitement because sin is enticing. It, it feels good at the time. The pain, the guilt, the heartache, or other consequences are removed from our vision so that we can just enjoy the moment. Satan does this on purpose. He never tips his hat to show the consequences. He shows only the beauty, the ecstasy, the fun of it. He doesn't tell the drunkard about the hangovers. Satan doesn't tell the drug user that this is the beginning of a long, sorrowful, hard, painful life. He doesn't tell the thief that when you get caught, you're going into jail and nobody will trust you. Satan doesn't tell the immorally involved sexual person that not only is pregnancy, but diseases and heartache are real possibilities. He never shows that. He just lets you see the fun. Verse 5, 2 Samuel 11:5. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Verse 5 comes several weeks later. She just come through her purification. We just read that. That's why she did her bathing. She's making sure she was all clean. Then David slept with her. And now she sends a message. I'm pregnant. What's the, what do you do when you're first caught in something? Generally, people try to cover it up. They just, oh, I didn't do that. Here's what it is. That's, they try to move it away so it's not around them. We, we panic when we get caught. Yeah, I love watching those videos of little kids who get caught eating something they're not supposed to. So many times they're like, oh, there's crumbs and stuff all over their face and they're hiding it. Uh, one boy, I saw him eating this cookie and it smeared all over his face. And she goes, are you eating a cookie? He puts it underneath his cup, trying to hide it. No, and as he says, no, cookies fall out. That's what David's going to do here. He panics. He gets the news. Now, he could have taken one of two courses. He could have openly confessed his wrongdoing. He could have gone before God. He could have gone before the nation. He could have come clean. We all are faced with this. When we get caught with something, we can come clean. Or David could go the route of deception and hypocrisy, the, the cover-up. And sadly, David chose the route that took him even further. The cover-up allows him to go even more into the, the lane of sin. Let's not forget, David choosing to lie and deceive set a motion of endless series of heartache, heartache within his life, within his family, and it cascades, it dominoes, into touching so many people's lives. 
He hit the peak, and he is falling down fast. When we are in the midst of panic, we generally don't make good good choices. We don't make good decisions when we're panicking. David had his night of passion, and now it's come back to haunt him. He has made another wife pregnant. This wife of another man pregnant. And so he comes up with plan A. He's got this plan, starting verse 6. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army of getting along and how the war was progressing. And then uh, he told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a, a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. Hey, it's an enticing. We don't know what the gift is right now. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Now, that doesn't mean the doorstep. They had a room, a barracks room for the guard in the beginning, the entrance. Okay, He went and slept there with the rest of the military people. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him again. What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being gone away for so long? This is what Uriah said. The Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home and wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. David says, well, stay here today. David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. David's plan is simple. I'm going to bring home Uriah. He's going to be so excited that he's going to go home and he's going to make a baby. That's what David's thinking. I'm going to bring him home. He's going to cozy up and we know what's going to happen. And then everybody will think that that is Uriah's child. Uriah is too faithful of a soldier to allow himself such pleasure when his fellow comrades are at war. So he didn't go home. Rather, he slept in the barracks there. Plan A didn't work. So David comes up with plan B. He invites him to another steak dinner, but this time he gets Uriah drunk. Thinking at least in his drunken state, he'll go home. Keep in mind, this is the same David who is called a man after God's own heart. Even drunk, Uriah was a better man at this point than King David. Uriah did not go home, but slept this, the, another time at the palace. No matter what he does, David can't pull off this strategy of deception. Well, it happens if plan A and plan B don't work. Plan C. Starting in verse 14, so the next morning David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. He gave this note to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. When the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight Uriah, the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. David did the unthinkable. He handed this man 
a death warrant. Here, go take this. This is going to kill you, but go take this and give it to the one that is in charge of you. But notice it wasn't just his own death. Several other Israelite soldiers died that day due to David's selfish, twisted cover-up. We can see how his callousness to his own sin has made David. He has a very cold heart about this. You jump to verse 25. He gets a message that he's, Uriah is dead. Well, David says this, Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. In other words, you win some and you lose some. This is one of his mighty men. One of his band of brothers. I'm just going to put a little conjecture here. I'm pretty sure it didn't take much figuring out on Joab's part to start piecing these together. You don't get to be a general by being stupid, at, at least back then you didn't. Some of you got that. But he also knew who was in charge and how to keep his job. So Joab, I think, kind of figures some of it out. To everyone else, everything appeared normal. Some soldiers died. There was a funeral. And then David, oh, he just graciously married this widow so that he could give her a son and then she'd be taken care of because, you know, Uriah was one of his mighty men. Verse 27, when the period of mourning was over, David slept, uh, sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives. She gave birth to a son. What's that last line say? But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. We're going to stop with this event, this story here. We're going to get into it again, the rest of it, next week. Instead of going further, I think we need to stop and see how this whole thing can apply to us today. This tragic, this tragic event in David's life, the first thing is very easy to see. Every one of us is vulnerable to temptation and sin. No one is too young or too old to fall into sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. When you think you're doing great with your spiritual life, be careful. You're probably going to fall. Any of us can fall into sin. Every single one of us in this room can fall to sin. That includes ministers, that includes elders, deacons, preachers, teachers, moms, dads, sons, and daughters. Have I covered it all? Every single one of us. Don't ever think you are too mature to fall into a sin. That's a lie of Satan. Don't ever think I am too spiritual to fall into that sin. You are listening to Satan. David, a man after God's own heart, he had stumbled. He dove headfirst into sin. So we're all vulnerable to it. Secondly, our minds will either be the pathway or the prevention from the sin. It started in his mind. Jesus taught us that sexual sin happens in the mind long before it happens in the action. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard the commandments that say you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
This is why there's such an emphasis on guarding our hearts and our thoughts. The battle has to be first won here. David, he saw that. His mind should have said, danger, look away, and turned. Instead, he disengaged his brain and kept looking. It is our job to try and keep our minds as pure as possible, which let me just tell you is incredibly difficult when you have Facebook. There are all these stupid ads that pop up, and I'm like, ah, I don't want to see that. I block and hide things almost every day. Why is it that the world's doing this? We got rid of Netflix because of the, the shows that they were promoting on there. And we're like, I'm not having that in my house. This world is saturated with sexual sin, and they want to push it on us and bring us into that. We must do our best to keep our minds as pure as possible. And when we find ourselves being tempted in any way, whether visually or otherwise, we have got to do something to break the cycle. Because if you flirt with temptation long enough, it will bring you into sin. If we find ourselves drawn to someone or something that is forbidden, your best response is to flee. Dustin just told a story about that in youth group. You need to ask the kids about it. About how this kid actually fled from a sexual sin. And those are the things I should have heard when I was in youth group. Those are the things that the church needs to be telling everybody. So, thank you, Dustin. You said that, and like, I've got to bring that into the sermon. Because he taught my boys, he taught all of your kids, when this happens, run. Run. You know what? That's what Joseph did. When Potiphar's wife accused him of something, he ran. She was beckoning him, hey, come here. That's what Paul told Timothy to do when sexual sin is at the door. Flee from it. And that's what David should have done. We must take captive every thought, letting go of the sinful ones and holding on to the holy ones. And this is hard. And that's where this scripture comes into mind. We need to listen to this verse and practice it. Philippians 4 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think. And the word think there really means dwell. Think, dwell upon these things. Just look at this list for a moment. If David had been thinking these things, would he have kept looking at Bathsheba? If he, he kept looking at her. If he was doing these things, would he have said, hey, go find out who that is? Would he have sent messengers to go bring her to him? If he was thinking of these, would he have slept with her? Would he try to trick Uriah? Would he plan a murder? Instead of trying to do a cover-up, we need to do a fess-up. We need to fess-up take responsibility for our sins, only then can we do what David should have done. Because here's how you stop the progression of sin. Repentance. Repentance is the way to stop that progression of sin. That's the next blank. 
repentance. That's turn away from it. David should have turned away, repent, get away from that, go a different direction. And that's what we need to do. When David saw Bathsheba, he should have turned immediately, not lusting after another moment. He could have repented after inquiring about, oh yeah, she's married. What am I thinking? He could have repented then. After bringing her into the palace, he could have said, that little voice saying, hey, David, man after God's own heart, are you really doing this? He could have repented after sleeping with her. He could have repented after found out she was pregnant. He could have repented after having tried and failed to set Uriah up. He could have stopped the progression of sin by, by repenting. But instead, it cascaded until he murdered several soldiers. So I want to say something. There are people in here who are in the progress of sin. Our progressive sin, it is going, it is compounding, it is going further. And the best time to repent is now, before it goes again. It goes even further. Wherever you are, Peter preached in Acts 3.19, now repent of your sins and turn to God. He didn't say wait. He didn't say go fix some things. He said now repent of your sins, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Your sins cannot be wiped away if you're holding on to them. You have to repent and give them up, and then God can take them away. I want you to know right now, none of us can get rid of our sins. Once you sin, you own it until you repent. Then God takes it away. How often does Satan try to fool us into thinking that this one time won't hurt? Just once. The truth is that sometimes it only takes once. And it only takes one sin to separate us from God. The beginning of Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Some sins it only takes once to have a difficult long-term physical consequence, such as alcohol or other drugs, just once and they could be hooked. That's true of stealing or letting anger get out of control. It can lead you into jail and broken relationships. Certainly the case with pregnancy, it only takes one sexual encounter to become pregnant and your whole life changes. I am not saying, and I'm playing pregnancy, means a bad baby. Babies are awesome. I say it again. Babies are awesome. I love them. If you have a baby here, you are required to let me hold it. Okay? I want to hold the baby. It is not the baby's fault that you didn't follow God's plan. And that child is still a wonderful gift from God. But there are consequences to how we bring children in. We must not believe Satan's lie that it's okay this once. Or, or after this one, then I'll be done. Just one more to get the fix and then it'll be over. David, the only person in the Bible ever called a man after God's own heart, failed. He allowed himself to be vulnerable to sin if he, if he fell into it. What about me? What about you? If David couldn't resist, how can I? So what are we going to do? How are we going to face these temptations? What do we do? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 
The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Let's just stop right there. Well, you don't know what I go through. Somebody else does. Anything we go through, someone else has gone through it too. You are never alone in your temptations. That's what this is saying. But God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. So when you are tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. Notice he doesn't take the temptation away. He opens a door for you to flee, to run. This is going to be too much for you to bear. Here you go. Here's your escape route. Right here it says it. We do not have to lose to temptation. And so right here we need to understand, Scripture declares, we can have victory over temptation. You don't have to fall to it. You don't have to stumble into it. Our God is faithful, and He is going to make a way for you to become victorious over it. Most, uh, one of the most widely used temptation that Satan uses, especially in our culture, is the sin, uh, a sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians, again, you've heard it in communion meditation, you've heard about 1 Corinthians, now we're also there again in chapter 7. But because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations. I've never heard this sermon before, just so you know. I've never heard this scripture in a sermon. Do not deprive, uh, deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a time, a limited time, so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That sounds like an escape route out of temptation of sexual sin. Marriage is God's perfect plan for a secure love, like Jason was talking about, of earthly love between a husband and a wife. Each person says to each other, I'll just tell you right now, this my body, I don't have authority over it. It is not my body. First and foremost, it belongs to God who has authority over it, and then it belongs to my wife. She can tell me what to do with it because she owns me and vice versa. In case in point, I did grow my hair back to prove to you all that I can grow it. And she said, I like it better bald. So what did I do? Okay. Because I submit to her, because she has ownership over me. One man, one woman, in a spiritual marriage, have authority over each other. God is telling us this. And when we have this perfect plan, when we do it, you're going to have secure love. You're going to have blissful sex. And you're going to have a happy family. Each person has say over the other. Once married, you are to submit to each other in this. This is the way family as God designed it. One guy, one woman, who come together in one marriage. And then they teach the kids how to do that. When done as God prescribed, even through the trials of this world, then your family will find joy, 
and encouragement. You want to know how to have a great marriage? Uh, look at that scripture. Just read all of First Corinthians. Read what David did and do the opposite. But put into practice what scripture actually says. Husbands, you want to be a better husband? I want you to hear me on this. You memorize Ephesians 5. Just do it. Go read it today. Ephesians 5. First thing it's going to say is submit to one another. Wait a minute. I thought she's supposed to submit to me. Well, she is. But you submit to her. She submits to you. Because you each belong to each other. I'm tired of the culture telling me how a marriage is supposed to work. I'm tired of the culture saying this is what sex is. I'm tired of culture saying this is what love looks like. Do you know what love really looks like? Love is going and holding that person's hair while they're throwing up. Love is actually saying, Honey, I know if you clean up that puke, you're going to puke again, so please let you go sit down. That was me. <laughs> love is saying, I can't live life without you. Love is saying, You're my favorite. Love is saying that he's the one who keeps us together. She didn't marry me for my good looks. She didn't marry me for my money. And we don't stay married because of that. David failed in temptation. I have failed in temptation. And it is only through God that I can stand up here and say, you can have victory over them. It is only through God that I can say, I have a great marriage because God fulfills it. That God sustains it. And we have so many broken relationships, even in this room right now, who are stuck in a, a progressive sin. That they're going down this wrong path. And God is saying, I will give you victory over it if you would just turn to me. Go fix it on your own. I've given you the door, and here's the greatest thing. He says, I'll give you an o a, a door, an open door to flee, and it leads you right to this. It leads you to the cross. Jesus faced every temptation. I know, hey, Jesus was a good-looking guy, and I know there were women trying to tempt him. He says, no, I've already got a bride. And that's my church. So much so that I'll die for her. You and I can claim the victory over our sin, over the temptations in Jesus alone. We're going to have some people ready to go in the back room, and if you are struggling with a sin, we're not going to have you come forward and blatantly pro uh, proclaim that to everybody. But will you meet with someone back there so we can together be the church and go to the throne of God and see the door that he's opened that you can find victory over this sin. Will you meet with us back there? Let's stand and let's pray. God, we, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you that we truly can have victory, that we don't have to fall to, into the temptation, that we don't have to stay vulnerable because your love, your powerful love, 
fuels us and prepares us. It can keep us from falling into that pit of sin. God, right now, I ask that you would speak into the hearts of the individuals, of the, of the people who are struggling with whatever the sin is that Satan has gotten into their life. Lord, right now, I ask that you kick Satan out of their life, that you put the hedge of protection and you ban him from this so that they can reach out of the muck of sin and they can grab your scarred, nail-printed hand. Help us as a church to, to know that we don't look at them with judgment, that we actually come beside and pick them up because we've also grabbed that same hand. God revealed to us Feel to us what you have called us to be, which is a pure and holy church. And I thank you, God, that you are always there with us when we call. I thank you for being there for me. Help us to be your church. And all the people say.